Hi everyone, this is Working Title, the podcast where we, four intrepid, handsome, intelligent, and entirely fraudulent reviewers, watch and review IMDb's top 250 English language movies as of November 2019, going from bottom to top. So watch along with us, and... I don't know. Uh, Next week, uh, you will either hear uh, <laughs> either hear SLC Punk or The Imitation Game. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Okay. All righty. Um, well, welcome back, everyone. I remember one more thing I need to open in order to do this. Uh, oh, my God. Has it been that long since I... There it is. Okay, I had to open my list of rankings. All right, everyone, welcome back to actually a kind of a monumentous occasion for us, episode 50 of Working Title, the podcast where we review Holy the moly. top 250 English language movies on IMDb. Wait, wasn't this uh, one supposed to be a special? Uh, no, the next one's going to be a special. Well, I mean, we've already done <laughs> one special, so this is not the 50th number episode, but this is the 50th movie. Somebody better go back and listen to the last part of the no, last I one. I think we said the next one's going to be a special. Yeah. Well, I mean... We'll make a special when we goddamn feel like it. <laughs> we can make a special and release it before this one. June, this is where you're going to have to... That just negates all of the things we've said. <laughs> then it won't be special. If you haven't edited the last <laughs> podcast yet, June, you might want to listen to that one first. No, I'm 100% sure we said we'd do after 50, because I'm the one Which that Which was that. recorded only the week after the one... Released. Are we watching <laughs> SLC Punk or Robot Jocks? SLC Punk. SLC. <laughs> now that none of us live in SLC. Um, <laughs> okay, cool. All right, well, so for episode 50, uh, we are talking about the 2014 movie, uh, somewhat of a biopic historical drama called The Imitation Game, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. I've said Cabbage Patch so many times. It's I have to like overcome muscle memory, not to. The most um, English name to ever be in England. Yes, uh, which is a movie about Alan Turing and specifically about him in the circumstances surrounding the cracking of the Enigma Code. Uh, this is historically based. It takes a few liberties uh, with the history, kind of assigns consolidates characters you know assigns contributions to other characters but otherwise it's a historical movie um basically about that about some of the persecution that alan turing endured as someone who was gay in you know the 40s to 50s in the uk at a time when it was illegal uh mostly enigma stuff though um yeah uh directed by morton tildum i don't know of anything else he's done um yeah, so before we get too far into it, we'll introduce the reviewers in the studio. Now, as part of this movie, uh, when Turing needs to uh, get more recruits to the code-breaking effort, he recruits them by posting an incredibly difficult crossword puzzle in the paper and invites those who solve it to come take another puzzle test and whatever, right? As, you know, the theory that these puzzles are somehow representative of mathematical skill and code breaking and as a prompt uh what test would you administer to uh weed through find the wheat in the chaff uh to get recruits for a special secret operation i'll go first my name is jack if i were administering a test to find the top uh top recruits 
I would use the fitness gram pacer test. Nice. <laughs> nice. Well done. You're going to have to explain <laughs> that one to me. <laughs> the fitness gram pacer test. Is... <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I wish I knew it off the top of my head. <laughs> the fitness gram pacer test is a multi-stage aerobic capacity test that progressively gets more difficult as it continues. Yes. <laughs> the 20 minute meter pacer test will begin in 30 seconds. Line up at the oh, start. Oh no. God damn it. <laughs> oh, that's great. You'll have you some have- moderately fit winners. <laughs> is this the one that we all did in elementary school? Yeah, or like I did in high school where you like stand in line and you have to run the distance. Yeah. We call it the presidential fitness test. I, I think I, there's a few similar ones. I think it's part of the presidential fitness test. Like, cause that's I feel like, like the a, presidential test was like all before automation. <laughs> <laughs> now they're like, now, line up, run. Yeah, now your fat gym coach doesn't have to read anything. He just presses play. Oh, no. Uh, Okay, so Jack is looking for fit individuals or moderately fit individuals. All right, I'm next, right? Yep. All right, so my test would be be the same kind of situation. It's going to be super top secret. Everybody comes into the room. There's a big speech about how top secret this is, and we brought in the best (laughs) of the best kind of situation. And... They're all handed a pamphlet, and they open it up, and it's the spot the difference between these two photos test. (laughs) It's the dress blue or silver. (laughs) Mike, are there any differences between the two photos? They're the same photo. Oh, so the people that say this is the same photo win or get to be part. (laughs) All right, Shane. Hi, my name is Shane, and uh, if I was tasked with a super super secret government program i would bring everyone into the room i'd say i'm looking for someone with hyper discipline and then i'd just go quiet and hit play and it goes sweet caroline but yeah, exactly you'd be out you'd be fucking out of this program damn it <laughs> You're out. That's really good. I like that. It's like playing Wagon Wheel in North Carolina. <laughs> uh, I just it go quiet. Someone would say, bah, 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 get the fuck out. I didn't God know where that was going it. until June ruined it. That was good. <laughs> no, I knew it was supposed to happen. I wanted to make the, the pause as long and as awkward as possible. Yeah, there's not a chance. I'll respond to that 100% that, of the time. That whole room is done. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm June. Um and my ideas have been just getting shot down every single time. I originally was going to do the uh the Voigtkampf test from Blade Runner and then somebody brought that up. And then I was going to do hashtag the dress, but I think Shane <laughs> mentioned that. <laughs> so now I guess I just like put a captcha on the screen or something. <laughs> a checkbox <laughs> do you want it <laughs> or or choose all the images with stoplights fire hydrants <laughs> <laughs> june just says he hands out a pamphlet in this room and it just says i am a nigerian prince looking to move his gold please put your social security in the address. Uh, it's just the box you got to click to prove you're not a robot <laughs> <laughs> 
Jesus. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> you just so. take their, their social security number on a form that and goes, then leave. That, that hits on a couple levels. levels. <laughs> June just puts a picture and it says, which one has bikes in it? <laughs> uh, they, they do refer to the CAPTCHA as a reverse Turing test, though, so they're That's oh, really? true. It's topical. I'm just envisioning a, an old school, like, uh, the fucking photo projectors with, like, the, the slides and you hit. It's just uh, photos. It's like, does it have bicycles? Yes. <laughs> Next. Does it have bicycles? No. I just I, I can't. <laughs> Nobody nobody in 2022 would ever show up to this government meeting if they had, like, just think about, like, how many pop-ups you get. If I were on the internet and I was doing a crossword puzzle and at the end it said, call this number if you got this done, immediately think it's a scam. Not calling that number. No, thank you, Manhattan Project. <laughs> the only people who would show up would be gullible idiots. That's why CIA recruitment numbers are so low. <laughs> I just picture going into June's test and he just hands it a piece of paper that says... Check this if you're not a robot. Yeah, I, I, I am a human. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. All righty. Well, I think we found the perfect set of That recruits. went better than I thought it was going to go. Good. Well done. Uh, okay. All right. Cool. So what's this movie about? We talked about that. Um, Mike, do you want to kind of run us through the play-by-play? Sure. So we start in the 1950s at the beginning of this film um, in London uh, at a crime scene. Somebody's broken into this house, um, which belongs to Alan Turing. Uh, police bring in a detective and, uh, you know, they're they're questioning this this individual, Alan, who is very eccentric, kind of weird, um, doesn't really have a good personality as far as, uh, you know, bedroom manner, if you, if you would. He's, he's kind of a, a jerk to these this detective, but however the detective really is, he thinks there's some other kind of weird play going on here or something deeper than than what uh, than Alan says. He Alan says that uh, somebody broke in and uh, nothing was stolen, uh, but this cop he doesn't he doesn't buy it. He thinks that there's something else going on here. Um, find out real quick. So this movie it jumps around between three different timelines. Uh, we have Alan as a child going to school, boarding school. Uh, we have him during World War II uh, working on the, the this machine that uh, ends up uh, helping solve the encryption for the Enigma machine that the Germans have. And then we have him during the 1950s after the war is over and his life that <clears throat> uh, continued on after his service to, to you know, the queen and country. Uh, so majority of this film takes place during World War II. It uh, starts at the very beginning where Alan is going to the, um, I forget the name of it. It's the, it's the headquarters of people Bletchley who- Bletchley Park. Yeah, Bletchley Park, where they, they're deciphering this code and this machine that they stole from the Germans uh, called the Enigma. And what the Enigma is, it's, it's, a, it's a deciphering machine that the Germans were using to um, send encrypted messages between uh, each other. Uh, and it was it was you know super advanced technology. It had 159 million 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 options, 18 zeros afterwards. That, uh, 100 billion. That that would be these encrypted messages, and and every day they would reset the code um, at midnight so that the next day's translation or trans translations would come out uh, differently. So this organization run by the British government hired on 
the smartest minds they could find, mathematicians, linguists, uh, code breakers, in order to make this, you know, Manhattan Project-esque group of people to try to decipher this machine and figure out the code so that they could eventually win the war. Um, so that's where Alan comes in. He's, like I said, he's brilliant, genius person, but very socially awkward, um, autistic, and, you know, has a little bit of his own uh, problems being able to work well with a team. And a lot of this beginning part of the movie, it has to do with that, his relationships and how he, he, how he interacts with the, his fellow uh, code breakers. And uh, he is struggling to, to, to do teamwork, but he's also, his team's not, they're not making any progress. Uh, like a couple of their like, like advancements where they, they deciphered a couple of codes, but it turns out they're really just doing it by chance almost. And they're not really making any real progress in getting a, a deciphering code to be able to break down the enigma um alan knows this and he, he kind of goes over the commander's head he tries to find a way to uh kind of get more funding for this machine that he has an idea for he wants to build uh, essentially a, a supercomputer to not only be able to decipher a code but also be able to think of like the logical next step in in the code making process right so it's it's going to be less of them guessing and it's going to be more of just plug in the numbers and output the correct code each day um so that's his his real big push and struggle and he eventually goes over the commander's head all the way to winston churchill um because there are ties with the mi6 who are funding this whole project they're well it's not funding they're backing this whole project right so mi6 it came to be as the as a the sixth form of government or sixth form of uh british intelligence that's supposed to be you know we all know it nowadays as being like spies operatives stuff like that so they're they're secretly trying to push this so that uh, nobody knows what's going on disguising it as like a radio factory um so alan gets he gets the funding and uh the backing of Winston Churchill and the MI6 agents or agency and he's now in charge of this program essentially to break or to build this machine so he gets his money for this machine um and I think at this point he also needs new people because he fires like half of his staff and uh the way he does that is he puts out this crossword puzzle this is our prompt that we talked about sends it out in the paper and Anybody who's able to decipher this crossword puzzle within six minutes, so they can call this number and they'll be invited to this um, this next stage of the test, uh, which I don't think they ever told us what the test was. But anyways, all these people, they show up in this room and Alan's there kind of telling everybody the instructions. And then we meet uh, Kira Knightley's character, who I forgot her name, Claire Clark, Clark, Miss Clark. She um, she shows up and she's like the only woman in the room. And uh, they Joanne do the, the, Clark? The, Joanne, yeah, that's right. She shows up and 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 like the the guy at the door is you know he's like just being like super chauvinistic and telling her the secretaries go upstairs and she's here for the test and you know she, Alan is like hey go take a seat let's get this done um, and she finishes the test within five minutes and like thirty four seconds uh, but the point of the test was supposed to be like an unpassable test it's like uh like the fitness gram pacer test. <laughs> yeah, how, how do people how do people deal with an unpassable test what's that one from star trek it's like that one like the, the kobayashi oh, maru, yeah, the Kobe yeah, so, maru. Like, so yeah alan's like spock and jones like uh kirk kirk right so i would have treated it like war game where the only way to win is to not play <laughs> 
Um, right. But yeah, so that's like uh, pretty much uh, one third of the movie right there. It's them kind of setting this whole little dream team up and getting their uh, getting their machine built. Yeah, so I, I want to jump in first. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. We should also talk about real quick. So like I said, this movie takes place in three different timelines. So it kind of jumps between a bunch of them. I thought the like most important part, and I think Jackie said the same thing, was the story of the Enigma code breaking process. Uh, but to go back into Alan and kind of learn more about him, he was going to school at this boarding school and he had this friend named Christopher. And Christopher was his like rock that kind of helped him through his social... Uh, experiences and helped him kind of have more of an understanding of how the human mind, which he keeps referring to as like normal people think, um, you know, struggling at the time with his autistic uh, thoughts and process and not being able to read social situations. This Christopher person was was really special to him in his life as a younger person. Um, and, and in the future, well, the future of the time of the most important part being the Enigma code break in the 40s and the 50s when he... Uh, He's arrested, and this whole movie is it's this kind of like it's a flashback or a callback. It's him telling the story to this detective who brings him in, and they find out uh, – well, the, the reason they're able to bring him in to do this questioning is he's caught uh, giving money to a prostitute um, who's a male, and homosexuality is illegal in Britain at, during the time. So they bring him in under those charges, and this detective wants to think – wants to find out if this is deeper than that, and it's not just something that he's covering up his homosexuality. And so this is where we get him telling the story to this uh, this detective um, throughout the film. Yeah, it kind of has that, I guess, story within a story kind of uh, yeah. element to it. Yeah, not the most creative start, but it's really yeah. not. It's very, it's very unnecessary. I feel like this whole portion of the film, the 1950s, him telling the story was it's almost an overdone trope in films. Well, I don't have a problem we, this with film it because been fine it, without it, it uses the present, quote unquote, and the movie to finish the movie. Well, that's that's yeah, we could talk about this near the end, but it gives a rush ending. Yeah, so yeah. what I will say is, so I, I think there's an element of making it, well, I, I don't know if it's necessary, but I kind of feel like the the 1950s narrative made it easier to jump back to 1928 when he was a kid without it being as forced, because it's not exactly a biopic, you know, it's, right. he, it, it makes it a little easier to make that extra jump, but maybe it's necessary, maybe it's not. I will say, I think this is probably one of the most uh, interesting, I struggle to find the right word, maybe compelling parts of the Alan Turing story is this like huge injustice done to him by the British government after he yeah. pretty much saved their ass and something saved that- Saved the world's ass. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for something that today we recognize is like, yeah, cool. It's, that's just yeah, who people are, just like right? Whatever. Um, anyway. So, uh, on the note of the structure of the movie, this really stood out to me as maybe the worst part of the movie where the team gets assembled and it's the tropiest crap ever. Like, <laughs> so, okay. So I, I do want to say Charles Dance steals every scene he's in, in everything, no yeah. matter what. That's Alexander, um, right? No, that's, um, that's the commander, the naval oh, commander. Oh, Deniston? Yeah. The, yeah. Um, uh, Game of Thrones guy? Yes. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he's super good. But that, that dumb interview where 
Alan Turing doesn't even want the job and then kind of says whatever and then sort of somehow talks his way back into it. I thought that was kind of silly. Or he's like, I don't want it. Well, I don't want you to want it. Good. Well, now I want you to want it. <laughs> well, I don't want it. You're hired. <laughs> but you, like, you need me like, more than I need you. I think well, what he's doing was the equivalent of the 1970s when you could either go to college or go to war and a lot of people try to go to college. I think him getting that job there was reverting the draft from him being on the front lines. Yeah. Um, but how did he get the interview? I don't well, know if I so caught he, that. He was a professor of mathematics. So um, given that this is a historical drama, I'll just sort of share like historical info or like inconsistencies as it comes up. But I think historically, uh, Commander Dennison was not like as adversarial as he was in the movie. <laughs> I can yeah. imagine. And... <laughs> You know, was actively going around recruiting mathematicians, uh, professors, lecturers, promising students, that kind of thing. So Turing would have, in real life, been recruited into that interview. Probably treated uh, a little nicer. Yeah. I, and If they run the military how they do now, Deniston was just a random officer. He probably didn't even have any, like, knowledge of code breaking. He was probably just, like, some ship captain that oh, hitting on the, the admiral was like, okay, my boy Deniston's good. He'll run it. <laughs> so when he gets there, he's probably not like, math is dumb. Like, <laughs> he, a good horse the, is, uh, or a computer is no match for a good horse. Like, he, well, he's just hitting on that. He's just hitting that tropey character of we need some guy to be a bad we guy. We need and someone that's to root against. Apparently, the Nazis weren't enough. <laughs> and, and he's the, you know, like you said, uh, military. Uh, real wars are won by orders and mm-hmm. fucking men. You know what I mean? Like, all right. Yeah, it's your program. So, it's your program. Yeah. Are you being a dick to your, your smartest people? And, and like, he wouldn't be like, you want to build a machine that's going to crack the Enigma? Have at Pop it. Kosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So his presence was, like, you know, every movie needs, like, that room of generals, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, like, overly militaristic and, like, not understanding at all. And he was just the embodiment of that for this movie. Yeah. yeah. And he used my favorite trope where someone's like, we need six months. He's like, you have three days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they do it. <laughs> so, more dumb stuff in the so this is going to be my salt shaker moment, but when they turn around <laughs> the enigma and they're like, "Ooh, what is it? It's a code machine." Ooh, how does it work? <laughs> it, all these all these people would have known it. They're just explaining it to each other that would, you know, People who know what it is explain it to other people who know what it is and right. how it works so the audience can understand. I get why they have to do it, but... And they have, like, the fucking spook from MI6 lurking literally oh, in the shadows. Mark Strong <laughs> is always just like, hello. <laughs> do we and, need to drive the plot? Here I am. And, like, so maybe I don't know history as well as I thought. Didn't Enigma get broken... Or didn't we get the machine because we sunk a u-boat or we captured a u-boat so that was a notable breakthrough so this is another thing too is um so you you can understand there's why you, the movie there's does a movie this. about that yeah das das boot, <laughs> boot. No, isn't it u571 the Widowmaker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you can understand why the movie sort of portrays this as this like Oh my God, the machine doesn't work. We need a breakthrough. We need a breakthrough. It's taking years. We got to get it this month. 
in reality, you know, uh, in certain circumstances, the Enigma had been cracked by Polish uh, cryptographers before the war started. They shared their research with British and French <laughs> and then later American <laughs> researchers. The Polish cracked it first, but the British like, we did it! <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, I mean, you know, then Poland got invaded, so they sent everything they had to England, right? You know, and then Alan Turing's contributions were immense, and he sort of dramatically improved it to the point where, you know, all kinds of stuff was possible that wasn't before. But the concept of this machine did exist. The cryptography did exist. The, you know, you can totally understand why that doesn't make for a compelling drama movie. Right. Yeah, were- and then they'll go on to be like, the Battle of Britain was won by Cracking the Enigma, which true but also that the royal air force basically halted germany and its place with radar but world war ii like <laughs> let's agree there's a lot of reasons why the, the the allies won but what i don't like is anyone that has like more than i would say your base level knowledge of world war ii starts to go well there's a lot of other factors it wasn't like it's not like alan turing himself is responsible for the complete and utter destruction of the Nazi empire. <laughs> like, I don't think, I think Turing necessarily did anything that won the war. I think what really he was doing the entire time was he wanted a machine and he could not find a way to fund his own research. So he decided to go join the, the, the army or whatever and get the government to pay for it. But his actual intention was not to solve or break the code. He just wanted to build a computer, like a badass that computer. That he could talk to. <laughs> yeah. He just, yeah. He just wanted to download his friend's brain into it. So <laughs> Um, yeah, so I'm trying to think. Uh, I think what you're thinking of is at one point an Enigma uh, codebook or setting book was captured from a submarine, which sort yeah, of gave like them all the info the code for of the like day a was month caught. or something. Yeah, yeah, uh, for a significant amount of time. People during World War II didn't have very creative code names for shit. Like they just couldn't break this code, so they just called it Enigma. <laughs> this is the puzzle <laughs> box. <laughs> <laughs> What are they using to shoot down our ships? Underwater boats. <laughs> I want to rewind a little bit to the yes. uh, uh, the fact that, like you were saying, there were four like parallel things going on, timelines in this thing. And I did find that confusing. Uh, cause I, it, for me, it wasn't like plainly clear that the, uh, I guess the cop investigating him were like, uh, that was like in the present. Yeah, uh, pa- yeah, whatever timeline uh, that was. I feel like, like it cleared it up on the back end, but you're right. In the beginning, it was a little like, wait, where is this in relation to things? Yeah, because it's like, to, to me, must- it, it, it seemed really weird because like it's the equivalent of like if they were, because I thought it was at this happening at the same time. So I'm like, okay, so you're telling me that this guy who was like, you know, going to work for the government is under investigation by... It's like it's like saying some guy that goes to work at Langley every day is being investigated by, like, Fairfax County PD. I know, <laughs> and, like, that they can make any progress in his case. Fairfax County would show up at Langley and they'd be like, you can go fuck yourself. They, <laughs> they did the thing that we all like, though, and they, they had the black and black screen with the white text explaining to us what's like, timelines were. For like the first couple of parts of the film. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. This movie uses some really simple and basic tropes, but it is so elevated by the actors in it and the simplicity of the storyline that 
you kind of look past it, at least in my case. But it's hard. It's hard to write a film about historical events. It's not like Blade Runner or Her or some of these other ones where you're like, really like, oh, my God, like, whoa, what do I do with myself right now? This is a very like A, B, C, D, the end movie. But it's not a bad thing, per se. But it's, it's not ABCD once you run it through the Enigma, Shane. That's right. Yeah. There's 159 million, million different versions of this movie. It's like it's Q's and L's and shit. <laughs> you know, because uh, the people, though, like you, though, who come in and say Tiger Tanks weren't during this battle, that, like, really fuck up historical films, I right? admitted to how stupid that comment was. The first Tiger Tank showed up in Tunisia in 1942. I didn't know that. I thought it was 44. <laughs> Okay, Tiger Tanks aside, um, <laughs> let me let me pull the room here real quick. Then, would you guys prefer a dramatized version of a historical event in a movie, or like the straight up actual story? Oh no, the actual story is boring as shit. He shows up every day to work and scratches on some piece of paper, and then walks home. <laughs> like, I think so what you, you just you, described is a documentary compared to a theatrical film. Yes, yeah, I true. mean, oh, for what this. Yeah. I, I think this is definitely an interesting and compelling movie. I'm I'm personally super interested in this kind of shit. So I I agree, but it, there's like a there's a cutoff, right? Because mm-hmm. once you start like adding, uh, like sh- shaping people's opinions on on actual facts, um, I think that becomes a little bit of an issue. Like the implication, not to skip ahead, but I'm gonna skip ahead. Um, the implication is that, you know, the British government put him under hormone treatment for homosexuality and that, like, led to his eventual suicide, but which really, you know, wasn't necessarily the case. There's a lot of these, like, kind of false atrocity kind of things. Like, so I, I do want to say hear about that because I got to the end and I was like, fuck you, Britain. Yeah, I'll, I'll hit that at the end, but there's some. So was I. <laughs> There's a lot of little little things throughout the movie that really shape your opinion of Alan Turing that's like really inaccurate, but can kind of be dangerous in the sense that you'll think about him differently than he actually was. So mm. I I do want to say I'm pretty familiar with the story of Alan Turing. Um given the nerd. Yeah, he's pretty <laughs> much a pioneer of like the the stuff I studied in college and the stuff I work at now. The maths. The, the <laughs> <laughs> there are inaccuracies, right? I think so. Okay, so the I, I will say it is the sort of generally accepted story that he committed suicide by a cyanide apple. Um, what? That sounds yes. like some MI6 bullshit to me. So um, <laughs> they smoked his ass. Well, the alternative is that he was just really bad at storing his cyanide. Yes. So, (laughs) yeah. So, where did I put it? Damn it. (laughs) I learned this today, too, that, you know, some people are speculating that, you know, it's also probable, or I shouldn't say probable, but it's it's a possibility. It's kind of an alternative theory that he was doing some, some kind of experimentation, working with something, inadvertently, you know, exposed himself to cyanide and died that way. Um, he was terrible at keeping secrets. The like he, he got pulled into the police off, like police department, and immediately, immediately spilled the beans. Spilled the beans. <laughs> um. So anyway, so that is to say, that is kind of like the accepted story, right? And there is this sort of counterfactual, I guess, saying that like, well, okay, well, this other thing is possible. 
and it's not impossible, but I don't think there's any way of conclusively saying that. And whatever investigations they did do concluded it was suicide. That is pretty um, sketched, though. How yeah, many people who's, killed who's themselves? Writing, with a, who's writing the document saying it was suicide? You yeah, know? and how well, many people kill themselves with a cyanide apple instead of? So the the argument is that he there was some kind of poetic, uh, you know, uh, um, he was a big fan of Snow White, and uh, oh, also okay. that he was trying to reserve some kind of deniability for his mother, so that she thought. It could have been an accident as opposed to intentional. Um, that huh. I think also sort of veers into the speculative, but that's that's kind of the the other thing. And then the other thing to note is it's not necessarily like, okay, well he, uh, you know, he was murdered by the British government, right? It was he was forced to undergo this uh, hormonal treatment that was, you know, incredibly unjust. I don't think there's any argument oh, that yeah. it, that was not it's so unjust. Insane. Right. And um, and then the sort of cause and effect is that he had to go through this and then committed suicide. I now, think June's ending is more interesting, though, where you have this like it was an accident. Where, where, well, where you just present the history as it was and let the audience kind of go, huh? Well, now we're getting the film, watching JFK again. Oh, <laughs> Do you think the no. film intentionally made a reference to that during the scene where he handed everybody apples? I mean, that he liked have, Oh, Alleged, apparently he liked apple like he, he typically He's had an apple before bed um every huh. night huh. now like but yeah that's what that's chain like that's the point i'm trying to make because when the last uh text in the movie is like it's very explicitly like yeah it basically says because of this hormone treatment he killed himself that's what the oh. movie right. is portraying yeah and whereas I, I guess that is disingenuous in a way well, what I do want to say is that is the accepted historical narrative, right? That's that's not just this movie saying that. Right. That is what... Well, the historical is what, narrative is that he committed suicide, not for any particular reason, right? It's not... It's that, the historical... Maybe we, should, maybe we should jump ahead a little bit in the plot because we're getting yeah. into subject matter that hasn't been covered yet. Yeah, but before I move on, what I'll say is when I say the hi the historical narrative, that is what people who are familiar with this story know about it. It's, you know, whether we're, that's not like what historians who are sort of- That's what the books, that's what the books of, say. Yeah, the, the, the generally accepted story. Yeah. Right. Uh, and there, there's a whole bunch of other things too that I'll get into at the end. Right, um, like he may have been killed that's... by an AI he created. <laughs> <laughs> the Blade Runners came back from- <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger came back to stop Skynet. <laughs> to stop Alan Turing from breaking Enigma. Now that's the Terminator a, sequel I want to see. He just had an ex machia machina situation where his robot force fed him an apple. Oscar Isaac guys, invited him to his mansion. Do you guys see the comic where Ernest Hemingway goes back in time with Jesus to kill Hitler? <laughs> anyway, that sounds okay. amazing. We're, we're way off baseline here. <laughs> way off. <laughs> All right, where were we? Uh, <laughs> he, just re he recruited a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah, he recruited, and this is when Kira Knightley's story starts. Yeah, so Joan is there, and uh, so her plot line is that because she's a female during the 1940s, people are 
putting her into a bubble of what is acceptable for women to be able to accomplish during the time. And Alan, having experienced the same kind of, of situation with society not accepting who he is and not seeing his brilliance for what it is, he has this connection, this unspoken connection with Joanne um, to the point where he actually goes and looking for her when she doesn't show up for, for the first day of work uh, because her parents want her to you know, not be in the workplace filled with men and she needs to be traditional and blah, 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 housewife, you know, kids. Uh, so Alan goes and, conv- you know, convinces that the parents that she's going to be coming and being a living in a female quarter and doing secretarial kind of work at this radio factory, um, which is untrue. But she has to put on the, the kind of the guys and, and, and do that and live in this woman's only building on this military establishment while while Alan feeds her these secretive documents that he's stealing from the uh, which is strange because she's able to go in and out whenever she wants normally but for some reason Alan has to bring her sensitive documents <laughs> um, anyways so that becomes a plot point though where because Alan's been bringing these documents and they've been deciphering them with each other um, at nighttime at her house she uh, eventually gets to the point where this this becomes like they're looking for like a spy so there's like some sensitive information was released and MI6 is like Ertin Churchill and, and the commander they're like somebody in, in your unit is a spy because they found these these sensitive documents got sent to, to Stalin in Moscow and uh, so now they're looking for this spy and they think it's Alan because the commander has like this huge beef with Alan and wants any excuse to get him his top guy out of this program that he's put a hundred thousand dollars or hundred thousand pounds into <laughs> any way he can him. to shoot himself in the right. foot. He's looking for it. <laughs> right. So he, he anyway, so he is now that's a little bit of like a subplot. It, it comes to fruition a little bit later, but nothing really comes of it. But it does lead to the MI6 showing up and. Uh, revealing to Alan that what's actually going on behind the scenes is MI6 is actually in control of everything, and they actually put this guy in the position who's one of the uh, one of the other um, deciphers in, in his group. He's that he's the spy, and they found it out because of like a text he used from the Bible. Um, yada yada yada. We go. Alan is now trying to figure out how to conceal the fact that he's a homosexual uh, because the. The other guy kind of caught on to it and he knows that Alan knows that he's a spy. And so he kind of like, you know, blackmails each other and says, well, if you don't tell, I won't tell kind of thing. But Alan kind of has to. And as soon as he goes and spills the beans to MI6, MI6 says, oh, yeah, we know. Like, we know this guy's a spy. So keep keep going the course. Keep doing what you're doing. We're, we're going to keep feeding people information. Um, but, you know, this this is when they've already solved the 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 turning or turning machine. Um they solved Enigma. Yeah, but but the, <laughs> but the more important thing about the kind of the relationship amongst them is that uh, because Alan is homosexual, he's trying to hide that. And Joanne can't stay there because she needs to leave to go back to be um, like a, a housewife in London. They decide that they'll get married, right? So Alan proposes to Joanne. Joanne kind of doesn't really know, but she suspects that Alan, he's a homosexual, but it kind of works out in their, both of their favors. So she gets to stay and keep on the project and it will kind of cover up the fact that Alan is um, actually gay. Um, so they get engaged uh, and that leads to these engagement parties where the, you know, during one of the parties, they, they, they're one of the roommates the for Joanne. She, she mentions the fact that she's a decipher or she, she brings in like 
the radio transmissions from the German. And she talks about how there's these patterns that this guy always has. And that like kind of turns the light bulb on and they all realize like, Oh shit, we're looking at this the wrong way. And they run back to their barn and they type into like the, the computer machine, um, repeating phrases and the three that they pick was weather because there's always a weather report in the morning and then at the end of every single message it says hail hitler um so they put those those trans you know transmission actions whatever into the machine and the the christopher the the computer is able to start solving the enigma codes immediately um so they're all celebrating they're all super happy about this great news uh they pull up all the they work all night and they find out there's this big naval uh, something happening, big naval action going on, and they say, "Oh shit, this thing! They're about to attack these civilian boats. Uh, we better like warn MI6 um, or the commander or you know somebody." And right before they make the phone call, they realize like, "Oh, we can't do that. If we start doing that, the Germans will immediately know that we cracked Enigma, and they'll change everything, and then all of our two years worth of work is going to go down the drain." Um, this leads to like this moral situation where one of the code crackers his brother is actually stationed or, or on one of these boats that's about to get hit and you know they they talk about how like we're, we're you know we have to we have to let people die in order to save people and end the war and it becomes this calculated risk kind of situation that they're now all put in charge of um and mi6 ends up using that and developing that team to become essentially mathematicians of cost-benefit analysis during the war, uh, keeping it so that it's just enough information that they can, you know, make uh, decisions that will help lead toward the victory, but at the same time, they got to let certain people die in order to to be able to accomplish this goal, um, which, uh, which alludes to the fact that that's kind of what MI6 does. They're shadow government kind of running it from behind the scenes, not really even letting their own military know exactly what's going on, sowing seeds of doubt and putting out just enough information so that the newspapers and the German army and the intelligence don't catch on to the fact that they have indeed uh, broken that the Enigma machine. Um, And that's essentially the story during the 1940s. And then for the last section, we'll talk about the end part of the 1950s. Okay. Lot to talk about here. <laughs> Guess not. <laughs> <laughs> That's all, folks. <laughs> Just to jump in with more sort of uh, historical basis, kind of everything that happened here was true, but it was all kind of compressed to happen around Alan Turing, where, you know, the all of these people who were in the room were real people, all the people on his team, historical figures did exist. Um However, you know, the guy with the brother on the boat didn't actually have any brothers, right? Mm -hmm. But that scenario is a real thing, but it was sort of dictated by admirals and generals and, you know, whoever. Uh, Not Alan Turing was not responsible for figuring out who lived and who died. That's what I was thinking, too. I was like, he would have been arrested for treason if freaking Denniston found out he was withholding and he had cracked the enigma, but wasn't giving it to him because not yet. Like, yeah, that's definitely something Churchill or someone would have been the one that takes the blame on that. Well, the movie kind of solves that by saying like, oh, OK, Menzies, this the the spook with MI6 is the one who sort of <laughs> brings them into the fold and covers that up and does that. Uh, so Menzies was a real person. He and Turing never met each other. <laughs> um, 
So anyway, uh, it, it, it's real things, real moral quandaries that happen through the course of the war, but it's all kind of scaled down to fit in side of this team. Yeah. And so was Samwise Ganji actually the Soviet spy the entire time or? That was that wasn't Sean Austin, was it? That no, was it was definitely it a sure look-alike, like him. Uh, <laughs> I definitely thought that while watching him, too. I had to think about it for a second. <laughs> so, uh, what was his first name? Yeah, he was a... So there was a Soviet spy within Bletchley Park? Um, yes, uh, John Cancross was a spy in Bletchley Park. But apparently now, he was a spy that the MI6 was okay with him being a spy? Do you think MI6 uh, just said that so they didn't look like idiots? Like, oh yeah, we knew. Oh, we knew the whole so, time. Definitely. <laughs> go get him, go get him. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, kind of complicated. So the other thing is, he and Alan Turing never would have met, right? He Bletchley Park was a big place, mm-hmm. right? I can't imagine the British government was like, you're allowed six people to break the enigma and not one more. Like, I'm sure there was <laughs> hundreds of people trying to break Enigma. Like, oh, yeah, and I mean, so the the nature of it, too, is that, like, okay, they get... How, how many radio messages do you think the Nazi Germany was producing a day? Oh, right? probably even, thousands that yeah, they even were once they crack it, they have a small army of people, mostly women, actually, who actually, you know, go and do the manual work of... You saw in the movie some of them transcribing, others... You know, doing the thing where, you know, they press the button and copy down what comes out. You know, that it, it was a small army of people doing this, right? Um, but yes, John Cairncross was a Soviet spy who worked in Bletchley Park. Freaking Soviets, man. And I don't know that they had sort of, um, you know, cracked him. But, well, I guess this is the other fun historical tidbit is... Uh, the British were extremely good at that in that every, at least for the Nazis, every spy that the Germans sent into British was found and turned <laughs> like every, every single one in World War II. That's not an exaggeration. All, and all the Nazis were like, we got another one in. We, can, yeah, and- we can't be stopped, baby. <laughs> Uh, in the film, their reasoning for letting him continue to be a spy was Churchill didn't trust Stalin, so they were not really were playing nice with each other. And so MI6 was using the spy to pass information intentionally to Moscow to get the. He was some a kind triple agent. Fake cooperation, <laughs> exactly. Agent. Yeah, I think that- triple double cross <laughs> million million. <laughs> <laughs> that historically, I think, is not true but yeah i mean it is true that that. churchill royally distrusted and did not like stalin but because i think fdr was kind of the middleman between them but that's that's as far as i know what that goes but it's it's i'm torn because like the real history is very very cool and interesting like breaking enigma that's pretty cool and alan turing is cool but like i also understand that you got to church it up a little bit for an hour what was it hour and a half almost two hour movie barely two hours um and i think they did a good job like i because i'm not like a huge world war ii historian like i could if i was a historian i might have been driven nuts by this movie but because i'm not i liked all the beats pretty much some of them were a little like okay wait a minute like 
is a pretty by the numbers like good drama. I I kind of compare it to and not totally to like a Soderbergh movie where it's got like a very distinct pattern no matter what is being presented and but it's always pretty good. Yeah. I I feel like I largely agree. And like I said, most just about everything that happens was true in some level. It just kind of does that historical drama sleight of hand of taking someone's accomplishments and giving them to someone on screen or putting two characters that didn't meet together to mm-hmm. sort of abstract around something or right. making some other true event that happened somewhere else in the world happen on screen, you know, that that kind of thing. And I I think those are pretty understandable sort of tweaks well, they did, in order to make a they did drama. A, they did a good job of bringing up, you know, I was real mad at the British government by the end of it. Oh, yeah. Because of the injustices like done to people. So it was a, it was an informative film. And the, and, the, and the fact that it said like 2013 is when like the queen like pardoned him. It's like, <laughs> right fuck before off. this movie came out, she's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> she heard this movie is being made. And it's like, oh, well, uh, you're forgiven. See? <laughs> so, so, so they did a good job of not only teaching me about the Turing test and how that kind of started. And they also taught me about how fucked up the British government has been forever. Um, if you ever want to see another one that's like that, it's called um, A Very British Crime or something like that. Bake Off. <laughs> yes. It has Hugh Grant, but he was a congressman that was gay, and it's kind of the same gig where all this craziness happens because Britain didn't like gay people. But yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, yes. going back. Uh, <laughs> I do agree that the anachronisms in this part- in this portion of the movie were were acceptable. Because they they weren't take away from anything. Yeah, they didn't like induce a moral like judgment against any of the characters per se. Yeah, yeah. It's not like I'm going to be going and having an argument at a bar about how it's pronounced turning test and not turning (laughs) test. Well, (laughs) you know, tomato, tomato. Um, But also (laughs) tomato, (laughs) tomato. But yeah, they didn't do like Alan Turning was in a bar and he saw Hitler and he's like, "You're wrong." And then left, and they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> it was, you gotta do what you gotta do to make this movie crisp. Yeah, and from Still a filmmaking feelable. standpoint, too, they, they there was a lot of foreshadowing um, that was capitalized on throughout the entire film. Uh, the new guy that had the brother on the ship or whatever, like, the fact that that was a thing, you know, it was, it was brought up beforehand and then, yeah. you know, capitalized on in that scene. Pretty good. And I don't think it's said, like, based on true events, right? Now, obviously, it's, like, implied that... No, it said at the very beginning, I think it explicitly said, this is a true story. Oh. <laughs> well, never mind. Fuck you, director. So, the end of this film, if we could just do... Because I think we're pretty much... We keep trying scr- to talk scr- about it anyway. Yeah. Scraping the bottom of the barrel here. Um, real real quick, how it ends is, so, after they've they've won the war... And they no longer need the this group. They, they're disbanded and told if they're lucky, they'll never see each other. Um, and they all go their separate ways. The engagement's broken off between Joanne and Alan. And, and Alan goes back to building his computer, Christopher. They have to destroy everything. So he has to kind of start over in square one. But now that he has all this you know experience and knowledge, he makes a more sophisticated version of his computer. And he kind of continues working on that for the years after the war uh, till we get to the point where he is in the 1950s. And we're back to the 
uh, police officer interrogating him and he ends up getting charged for indecency. Um, so in other words, the detective doesn't spill the beans on all of the secretive stuff that Alan told him about during World War II. Um, kind of lets that die away. Uh, kind of the, the hard-hitting conversation he has with this detective is he's administering the Turing test to him and he asks him, like, am I a war hero? Am I a machine? Or am I a, uh, like a criminal? Um and then the guy's like, I can't judge you. So that's like the big, wow. You know, <laughs> He's moment. like, fuck if I Which, know. <laughs> so what, what is not how the Turing test works. <laughs> so how? So what ends up happening from that, though, is now Alan's now told by a judge, you either go to jail for two years or you have to be um, chemically castorized, castrated. And he takes that option. Joanne sees the, you know, in the paper, this story and goes to him at his home and, uh, He's doing, you know, he's in a bad way, but he's kind of reminded by Joanne that what his work did and and who Christopher wanted him to be in life, you know, he's accomplished that goal. And that's the final scene. And and uh, before the end credits, we we learn that he uh, eventually committed suicide after a year of being forced into taking these drugs um, and that the Turing test is now part of or the Turing machine has been kind of the name for the modern day computer. And he was kind of the forefather for, for what we're, where we're at technology wise when it comes to uh, computers nowadays. Yeah. And you bring up, um, Joanne, who I think is, um, probably my favorite character in this movie. Kira Knightley does a good job. And I just like how Joanne, where there's this big, like they're going to get married. He's using her, He's using her to hide his homosexuality. She's using him to stay in Bletchley Park. So it's kind of a mutual agreement. And then he's afraid that she's going to find out that he's a homosexual. And he finally tells her is like to break it off. And she's like, oh, I know. Like, that's that's cool. I, I like what we have. And he has to like ante up because he wants to protect her. But Joanne is just always awesome throughout this movie. She's just what's weird about that and, and kind of worthless is that she does that he does that he tells her like I don't love you or I never cared for you and she gets super pissed at him and she ends up just staying there anyways so they could have just continued to I, work with each I'm other because they you ended bring up that doing up. that that was the weakest part of this movie that where he and he he says like oh well I never liked you anyways and she's <laughs> supposed to be this brilliant person and she can't see through within the second from him being like I love you but I'm ho- I'm gay to fuck you you're stupid and she can't see well, that, that was... he's obviously throwing a shield up yeah so her shtick the whole time was she's good at reading people's like actual words like read between the lines kind of thing and she couldn't figure that out i had the same gripe yeah that was way out of character for her Especially since she comes back later and obviously like still cares for him deeply and is trying to help him and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, this kind of would all been avoided if you just would have got married. Probably like, (laughs) I, I don't know. That was a break from her character that I didn't like. And I liked her the entire movie other than that part. Cause it was too convenient. I feel like this movie did kind of dip into those, right? Like the whole, the, the Soviet spy thing where he's like, there's this brief moral conundrum of like, oh, he's got, you know, he knows a secret about me that could get me in trouble. So I'm I'm getting blackmailed. What do I do? And then, yeah, just like, oh, yeah, tell him I six. And they're like, oh, we, yeah, yeah, we, we don't we, give we, a shit. <laughs> we, we've known for years. <laughs> We're behind it all. 
you know, and then this where it's like, oh, you know, he kind of has to protect her and has to tell her this. Oh, and yeah, then and then it, Menzi it also- goes like, oh, we don't care anyways. Like, we know she's not the spy. Yeah. <laughs> this is and- this. Yeah. This is where the film started falling short from not this part particularly, but the but the but throughout the film, a lot of the time when there's like an issue or a problem, it gets really kind of scurried through real quick, um, especially at the very end. It kind of just sums up it, it. It does this. I didn't like the fact that it did the this is from the perspective of my story to this detective in a police station and it just felt rushed and like they're presenting you with information and they're giving you a conclusion almost immediately. What I'm taking yeah. from this is that you have some really, really good actors and the baseline historical story is really cool. But the writers but we're way off baseline. are not up to the task, so they simplify everything to fit something they're trying to do. And that's where the the cracks start to form. Well, but yeah, I, I those think- cracks are very small. I will say that because I did like this movie, but yeah, I, I think it kind of comes with trying to make this not a documentary and into it. Yeah, I, I think part of the goal was to sort of make it make you sort of empathize with Turing and see his perspective and portray him as a human being as opposed to like some mathematician in a textbook. Um, I, I feel like this movie did kind of descend into tropes, though, like when she shows up to take the puzzle for the first, you know, in the oh, first part, God. like what do you mean you solved this puzzle? Clearly only a man could do that. It's like, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, and was there not another guy that's nose. like, I got it. Shut up. She got it first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's, um, and you know, it's another case where it's sort of slightly exaggerated where I, in reality, she was a really promising math student and, uh, was recruited on that basis and didn't have to go through this whole charade of you know, there was like this weirdness where Alan was smuggling her Enigma documents for a while and then she just also kind of started showing up to work yeah, <laughs> yeah because they just got <laughs> the sick hell? of filming him stealing shit <laughs> well they just yeah. needed it for a plot point later on to be like when MI6 bro and Menzi shows up and uses like the we found the document why the hell were they still there are they like for smart okay. people they're not very smart okay this yeah. this brings up something and maybe you all noticed it too how bad was the security at bletchley park <laughs> because <laughs> they just ran through on a few occasions First, when, when, they, sneaks when out, they bum rush the gate and they don't get shot my like, wife and i were laughing so hard because like and there's another one. Oh, another one got through and there's another <laughs> one there. are they oh god oh jesus another one like those five or six guards let eight people through the gate before they finally got a handle on things like yeah go 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 rush a military like barricade and see what happens i was like is this the capital police guarding this place jesus christ yeah no, no wonder there were spies <laughs> <laughs> like he snuck out like 12 <laughs> enigma documents on his person like in his pants <laughs> and the guards checked his bike and were like no documents here (laughs) they were so bad and I don't know if he just had to be more creative or in real life it was a little more but what I'm scared of is in real life it was probably less creative he probably just carried them out (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I think in I, real life she probably was just working in the same room as them, and she did. They didn't need to smuggle her documents. Like that's the point, right? She was a part of this program. Yeah, she was. Yeah. She was fully member. Now she did face discrimination, right? Like she. Oh, for sure. I'm sure. She got paid less than the men. Um, she was only able to sort of rise so far. So, um, Alan Turing was head of what was called Hut Eight, and then Hugh Alexander succeeded him, and. Joan Clark was deputy head, but could never become head because she was a woman. So uh, that's factual. But I, I also like that after they got through that first scene, which was a little too on the nose, the they did a pretty good job balancing the whole like dynamic of she's a woman working on this project in an era where that's not what women were generally permitted or educated to do. And I, I think they after they got through that first like you know, a little too obvious right. for a scene. They did a pretty good job where they didn't shy away from it. They didn't overdo it, but the, it was there and it was just kind of a, it was a thing that was part of her character. Right. Oh, I missed the entire part in the plot where the Christopher guy dies. What so about his, his friend, I didn't talk about that at all. Um, oh, his buddy yeah. from, uh, from boarding school, like had like some kind of lung disease and died over, died over the break. Consumption. So then, yeah, that's why Alan was all scared of being. Doesn't matter anymore. C- continue. Well, I so, mean, it, it's the whole reason why he pursues the computer so hard is because I think the under the, the undertone is that he's in some weird way trying to revive Christopher or like communicate with him again. That's how I, I took think it. Memorial. I think memorialize him is. Yeah, I don't know if he was trying to like rebirth him. I think he just. Had an attachment to it. a computer. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Rise, Christopher. <laughs> so, that Alan, is, maybe it's because Alan? I always associate Alan Turing with AI. So, I'm just like, that's what he's trying to create. <laughs> um, so, in in reality, the machine was called Victory. They were oh. all kind of codenamed. <laughs> Christopher wasn't real. Yeah. They didn't so, even call it Christopher? Nope. Was, he, Christopher never existed. That's Christopher, super weird. Christopher oh, no. was... He was in I, his head just... the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> this movie was purgatory the whole time. That's so, a little bit too much so of a So in real life, the computer's artistic... name was actually Pumbaa, but that was just not very... <laughs> Christopher was actually the name of the sled. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And the computer's so, name was Rosebud. <laughs> uh, another historical note, Christopher, as a person, did exist, um, but... Definitely didn't die. Did die, however... <laughs> Would you like to try a third time, Mike? <laughs> I think the movie doesn't exactly... It doesn't lead into this, but I think there's kind of an implication that the two are sort of, you know, in love in sort of a, you know, a, a young, innocent kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, in reality, I think it, people seem to think it's more likely that Turing had more of like an unrequited love for this guy, you know, where he didn't feel the same way back. Right. Mm. Um, so I, you know, it's another case of something that they kind of turned the dial up on for the sake of a movie. Right. Yeah. Which I think we're finding out is majority of this. Cause it wouldn't have been as fun if it didn't have these leeways. Well, here's the other thing that like, I mean, you know, my opinion, but this was another like Oscar checklist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A little yeah, bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? It had it had all of the, the social 
injustices or whatever, just like check the block. Yeah, that you not have really to have. delve into it too much on any account. But it was like, hey, that got a best picture nomination. You know what I mean? You think Christopher's yeah, and- family still holds on? They're like, Christopher wasn't gay. Like, that's ridiculous. It was uh, Alan. <laughs> so I mean. There, I feel like this movie was big enough that a lot of people did respond, you know, about their relatives and, it, you know, that subject matter is recent enough. Like, Denison's uh, descendants kind of complained a little bit, saying, like, okay, he wasn't the bad guy. Um, that's that's <laughs> another fair. Historical inaccuracy is uh, um, Joan Clark's surviving niece <laughs> complained because Kira Knightley was too hot to play her. Joan <laughs> <laughs> Clark was an average-looking woman. You play her as such, quote unquote, rather plain. God, God for you know, that's like my descendants being like, if I did something famous and Brad Pitt gets cast as me, and my descendants are like, now wait a goddamn second. <laughs> the day, yeah, we gotta. We got to get Ryan Gosling and run him over with a truck. <laughs> you get old Mickey Rourke in there. <laughs> oh, that's a fate worse than death. God, that's funny. That's a very British thing, too. I have a bit of an issue here. Kieran Knightley is quite too pretty. Joan was quite plain. <laughs> How dare you tarnish um, The Clarks are proud of our brain and not our wits, or not our looks. So the other thing too, talking about history and Alan Turing specifically, this movie definitely leaned into a portrayal that I think sort of implies somewhere on the autism spectrum that I don't know necessarily tracks with who Alan Turing was. I think it kind of, I don't know, it it suits the story and it makes for, you know, interesting conflict between the characters where he's, you know, very literal and you know, humorless and kind of indifferent and gives him, you know, some some growth. But I think historically he was well-liked. He was a leader from the get-go. Um, people <laughs> found him to have a good sense of humor. So, you know, it's... I'm not entirely sure, like, how to feel about it. I, I think, you know, it's a character choice. And, yeah, I think sort of retroactively diagnosing people with diseases is just a thing. Sorry, I, I shouldn't say disease uh, in relation to autism, but... You know, you hear about it with like Abraham Lincoln or whoever, right? right. Like, you know, I think retroactively diagnosing people with uh, things, I apologize, disease is the wrong word, but it, it's it's a thing that happens a lot. And I think, you know, it, it's a reasonable choice to portray him this way for a movie, but that's not really who he was. Do you think that that adds to the film? Right? If he shows up and he's very confident I, and things like that? like I don't know that, because yeah, I mean, he was like... He was well liked by all of his friends. He just like didn't like working with people cuz you know. Yeah. I think that that probably would have been enough. It sounds like Alexander was more of the uh Alan Turing it's character. A, <laughs> well, and and there's a bunch of other things too like he's kind of portrayed to be like extremely stubborn like personally writing Winston Churchill like are you kidding me? But <laughs> yeah. what it doesn't say is that like a, Churchill had visited the damn place like a couple I weeks ago. Imagine. So he was like very <laughs> familiar with the project. And then like hundreds of other people had written the dude for more money. I think so, I think artistic leeways is necessary in films like this. I think if they had made it historically accurate, it would have been first off a documentary, a documentary. Be boring, yeah. So I think I think it's okay. I, I I I would like to posit that 
it would have been more interesting had they focused on kind of the the importance of Enigma. Because right now they're just like, it's enough to say like, oh, it's going to win the war and all that other shit. But like, show the effects of what's happening on the front line more so than like a few shots of some tanks and shit. Right. Yeah. Like, Big budget. Like a like someone on the front line getting like, hey, you've got fighters coming your way in 30 minutes. And they're like, okay. And they all aim their guns and blast them out of the sky. Like, But they can't do that because then they would know that they broke the enigma. Well, they did do yeah, that so at some point. This. Did you even watch no, the they movie? they <laughs> did do this at some point because they did, they cracked enigma yeah, the- and they used it. But they sold it as like, oh, they found out because the baker down the road right. saw what, a German I think that's- map. I think that's extremely interesting to portray as scenes in the film um, when, you know, giant Brit- or, uh, German naval movements are being like, because even the Germans had their suspicions, right? right? Like, but every time they kind of found an excuse, because um, I, I don't know if it was bravado in that sense that of it being unbreakable or whatever, but it was like, ah, it's a little suspicious that these, you know, American transmissions we deciphered were like exactly the number of ships we had but it's probably due to their radar or whatever <laughs> well um, we can talk about the actual historical facts here because or that enigma was just such a pain in the ass to make they're like we're not doing this again this, yeah, is, right. this is what we have done <laughs> they don't even know how it works in, in some regards the germans look like the three stooges when it comes to this shit because oh, yeah. there were so oh, many God, cases yeah. Um, one example is, you know, the, the German battleship, the Bismarck was sunk, right? And the British figured out where it was and found its, you know, supply, you know, convoy and decided, okay, we're going to go sink these, but not all of them. You know, we only know where six of the eight are and we're only going to sink six of them. So it's not too suspicious. And then they accidentally find the other two anyway and sink them. And the Germans were like, oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Damn, all eight. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, and then, yeah, so there were a lot of cases, the Enigma also got progressively more difficult throughout the war, you know, additional rotors were added, uh, practices were changed, you know, stuff like that, stuff that complicates it doesn't necessarily make for a more interesting movie to talk about. But to your point, I think the difficulty with portraying it is, you know, in the movie, we got him saying like, you know, D-Day, Battle of the Bulge, you know, uh, attacking Berlin, whatever, right? These are things that would not have worked without this effort. Which I have issue with because the Battle of the Bulge was a complete surprise to the Allies. And if it wasn't for some real strokes of luck or a couple bridges, that would have really gone tits up. Ah, so you see MI6 did its job then, because that's what you think happened. Yeah, apparently yeah. I'm just so, a pawn in the MI6 scheme. <laughs> this is this is the difficulty with portraying it, right, is that um, the effects of this, you have to keep in mind, they're not like hopping on the phone. They're like, hey, Jim in North Africa, you know, there's a, you know, this is coming your way. It's, it's very second order. It's like, oh, you know, they're going to go sink a, a ship with oil on it to cut off the submarine fleets or whatever, or tell a convoy to steer around. That's not very sexy, but it does mean that like, oh yeah, England gets bread. Pretty important, but... Right, and someone reads it, they pick up a string and a cone, and then they go to that person, and yeah. that person gets the string and the cone. <laughs> yeah, well, or it goes, you know, like, up the chain, and then it gets decided what happens with it, and it goes down, and you know, ultimately, too, the human factors start to come into play. And there's like lots of cases where there's a good intelligence and then someone ignores it. 
or you know i mean other side of the world pearl harbor is an example of this you know the japanese encryption was cracked in the 30s they never learned it was cracked if i remember right people knew there was something that was going to happen on december 7th but no one did anything about it right and there's just a bajillion examples of that because it was a huge war right mm-hmm. yeah it's kind of the nature of intelligence Fair. um apparently the germans were not surprised that it could be cracked after the war and they were just surprised that someone had gone to the trouble to do it <laughs> <laughs> they, they mi6'd it bro they were like we knew it was cracked the whole time <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly we cracked it you scum Yes, we knew you would crack it at some point, duh. <laughs> what a weird... Um, I wonder if that's just like post-war positioning where like, well, we knew you'd crack it anyways, so... <laughs> nah, nah. Yeah. It just took you so long, we cracked it in two days. <laughs> it took you two years. <laughs> we didn't even want to win the war. Oh. <laughs> we let you win. Yeah, we stopped changing it because we thought it would be too hard for you. <laughs> um, I think it just uh, going down the list of so- the anachronisms, just for the sake of it, not necessarily complaining um, about it, because I do agree, it would have been it's pretty fucking boring. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it just... it's fun to talk about them, because history is also interesting. Yeah, um, eh. I guess from the beginning... Uh, We've already discussed that he wasn't very, uh, he wasn't like potentially autistic. And Joan's recruitment was just purely based on, you know, she was a genius. Her merit. <laughs> well, yes. and her, and her, um, professor at the time, I believe, was like, yeah, she's a genius. And her professor also got recruited into this program and was like, and just recruited her, um, she wasn't like instrumental in this like cracking of the fucking enigma because again the cracking of the enigma in itself was kind of an anachronism in this uh, in this film, <laughs> yeah. um, but she was uh, like again very like instrumental in with one of the thousands of people working on this thing right like just constantly cracking shit um, after the code had been cracked as it were. Um, she was good friends with Alan throughout the whole, like, since they met, and uh, the proposal was real, um, and all of that other stuff. Uh, let's see. The Enigma, like you said, was already pretty much cracked by the Polish, uh, as Jack mentioned, and then for one reason or another, i.e. a, pr- a potential invasion, uh, they moved all their equipment to Britain, and uh, it was, it, it, from what I'm reading, it kind of just sat there, <laughs> like... <laughs> Everyone had kind of like resigned the fact that it was like uncrackable or whatever, and Turing was really the one that was like, "Yeah, fuck it, I'm gonna do it." The Polish were like it's all but cracked, and like, ah, it's impossible. Yeah, so he improved <laughs> the actual machine, uh, the bomb, as it were, a cryptographic bomb, as they call it. So he built and improved upon that design, and then would later oversee like the building of the American one and and all of the uh, the other machines, uh, I guess. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think it's uh, there's kind of an interesting distinction that like the Enigma was kind of understood and in some cases could be broken. But yeah, the work, like you said, is largely evolving these machines that can do it in an automated fashion uh, because it's not a joke. 159 million, million, million uh, possibilities that it could rearrange to you. You could purchase an Enigma machine 
commercially before the war started, right? So everyone knew how they worked. But it's a question of can you decode what one sends to another without knowing the settings they used without to send it? Without knowing the key, yeah. Within 24 hours, you know. Yes, when they change the settings. That's that's very real. And, you know, it, the, the Germans made it more difficult as the war went on. The Navy in particular, the one that the German Navy, the one that Turing worked to break was the most rigorous and fastidious of all of the, you know, Enigma users. And so that was the most difficult. They changed more regularly. You know, they printed their code books and submarines with water-soluble ink. So if they were scuttled or sank, you couldn't get it. Um, they, you know, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that really whole thing. The, sorry, go ahead. The the most the most interesting part of this of all was the the computation, the computers, because these were the things that would then you know these are the the great granddaddy of the iPhone, right? Right. Eventually, people would take what Alan Turing helped make and just smoke weed and interview conspiracy theorists and build replicants. Yeah, build replicants. <laughs> yeah, my phone um, can almost pass a Turing test. The uh, the sudden revelation of like, oh, we can just look for like consistencies within the uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> transmissions. Like that had been done well before I these know, machines that would had be even like been built. One, I feel like it's like <laughs> that's like the oldest trick in the book. Yes, yeah. Heil Hitler. Oh, very good. We have a lot of letters. <laughs> um, let's what's see. The, what's that? What's that? Wordle? Like, isn't that it's the just point the of Wordle? wordle. <laughs> yeah, just every day is freaking uh, audio. <laughs> there were other ciphers that were broken by uh Bletchley Park uh the Lorenz cipher argued as just as important uh let's that? see uh, just another cipher I guess I, oh. I don't know I'm sure uh, I'm yeah. sure there'll be another movie about it at some point All right. so I mean a lot of the cryptography of the time kind of revolved around the same idea which was like these cylinders that rotated in different electrical contacts would make path so that as you type the cipher would change and change different letters in un, not unpredictably but extremely cryptically i guess into other ones the u.s used a similar system the japanese had a similar system so everyone was using this but it was different tweaks and variations and you know ways of upping the ante to make it more difficult cool. another anachronism that i i personally had a problem with was the whole like turing was a spy thing uh, that never happened. He was never suspected of being a spy. And I don't think that really added to the movie. And it uh, was as a whole. so loose how that officer yeah. came to that conclusion. It was, <laughs> but, it was but good. But he was that... like sp- spy light, though. He like didn't do that much <laughs> espionage. He, um, it, it's good that they hit on uh, the actual spy because I mean that was a critical point of like Bletchley Park. But the whole like ah uh, he's a spy and then it's just like funny that the the like beat cops were like you got him boss he's a homosexual <laughs> <laughs> no he's, like, he's a what? spy and <laughs> no, who gives a shit he's gay <laughs> just imagine you're that guy and you're like wait a minute no this is not where I wanted this to go at all <laughs> but thank you guys that, are all missing the point I've got a spy that, you've got a gay spy <laughs> wait no no. That, <laughs> That does kind of bring to the point, though, this is what this was how he was convicted. Like, this true. is a true story. Yeah. He was burgled by someone who he was, I guess, romantically involved with. I don't know if the guy was a, a prostitute historically or if he was just kind of a. I no, guess I a think lover. they literally just went out, went out to dinner and got yeah. burgled. Um, 
Well, why yeah. did, it, why did so, it make it seem like he was a prostitute in this film? I, I mean, I think that, uh, I don't know, but he was Rob, and during the investigation, he acknowledged having, like, a relationship with this guy, and so, you know, there there was none of this, like, going to Langley and trying to get this guy's records with white out over a, a name oh, on my a paper that was signed. Oh, my God. Like, the secretary like how he looked, just told him. Like, and it's just basically <laughs> his name crossed out and his written over it, and she's like, eh, it looks good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have a suspicion that the folks that, like, whoever maintains these records, they've probably seen this shit before. And, like, they took his files so- out and just left a folder? Why didn't they just take his entire fucking name out? <laughs> Solved. You'll never find the record. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I love how they mail the guy an empty folder. Just, <laughs> he's like, he opens it and it's just a middle finger. Huh. <laughs> God. Uh, um, on to the, the homosexuality bit there. The, he was reported as being open with all, um, a lot of his close acquaintances. I mean, so he did was, literally mention it to the police as they were investigating him. Yeah, so there True. was less of an effort to to keep it a secret than the movie portrays. And you think that MI6 would have, or like would have circled the wagons a little more instead of just throwing him to the wolves if they're trying to keep this all secret, you know? Well, they gave him an apple with poison in it. That's true. They killed him, so. <laughs> I, I, mean, I will say on, <laughs> well, we'll get into that at the end here. Um, uh, let's see the, I'm going to get into it now. The suicide, um, story, I guess, go, like it's, it is kind of like, unfortunately muddled, like you don't, uh, you know, you don't want to make it into a conspiracy, but like they said he died by consuming an apple laced with cyanide, but they never tested the apple for cyanide. <laughs> oh, oh. So let me... Let me take a step back. Are you suggesting that his death was at someone else's hands or that it was an accident or that it was maybe suicide, maybe an accident and like the evidence is not clear? I'm sighted on MI6 murked him. We'll have to wait for another uh, movie. It, That'll come out in the next 50 the, years. The limitation <laughs> game. As soon as the as soon as the Kennedy documents are released, yeah, <laughs> Kevin Costner's on it. Every year we basically just get those documents, and it's just one more word is unsharpied. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like son of a bitch. <laughs> well, I think it's um, a good point to kind of wrap this up. Oh no, there's so many more. Okay, more. Oh god, we're we're, we're less <laughs> discussing a film at this point and talking just history or history on it. That's the most interesting part of this film, right? <laughs> Is what this film well, missed. <laughs> when we and, start our history documentary podcast, then we can go down those holes. Let me hit you with the biggest one of all, all that is listed on on this list of anachronisms. I'll read a word for word. In the scene where Joan Clark arrives at Bletchley Park for the first time, she travels there on a coach with vehicle registration HOD 75. This vehicle registration was not issued until 1949, Holy several years after the end shit. of the war. Yep. Just going to blow this thing wide open. Let me look at that cryptography machine. <laughs> and Joan Clark wasn't pretty. <laughs> Makes you wonder what else they're lying to you about. <laughs> Someone uh, was like, wait a minute. That license plate wasn't issued until the 50s. 
<laughs> God damn. I will say in a roundabout way, the um the way this movie portrays the events, it does kind of breed or, or it encourages people to to look it up, I think, and, right. and learn a little bit, which in a roundabout way is kinda is beneficial. Yeah. The, I, I think that's kind of like a sign of a good historical movie where it is this almost feels like a backhanded compliment, but to call it true enough, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like if you make a war movie and like you show all this like hand-to-hand combat and all this shit, but then reality, the real life was just guys at 500 yards taking pot shots at each other until enough <laughs> were dead and then they maneuvered. Like it, It's not as sexy, so you, you got to church it up. Well, and this movie came out the same year as American Sniper, so they knew they weren't going to win the award for best sound editing. Because <laughs> there was already a war movie on the docket. Yeah. So that's a good segue into the awards this movie won, because it was pretty successful. So it received eight nominations uh, for the Oscars, um, nominated for best picture, uh, best nominated for best director Benedict was nominated for best actor as well as um, uh, Kira Knightley for best supporting actress let me take a look there's got to be a better way to view these instead of going through and scanning for it I got you uh, Graham Moore for best adapted screenplay <laughs> uh, now uh, best film editing best original score and best production design and it won best adapted screenplay so yes fair nominated for eight is pretty successful yeah that's for a movie that's no slouch i don't know about Kira knightley being best supporting i gotta think about all the others she wasn't bad but it wasn't like i don't think she really like ventured out of her range or you know or like demonstrated something that went above and beyond i feel like she just played Kira knightley yeah. Well, she was nominated, didn't win. Okay, yeah. Um, but um holy shit, Eddie Redmayne won in best actor that year. Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> Sorry, I just think of that stupid movie he did with Channing Tatum. <laughs> so bad. So, so bad. bad. Yeah. I just think of like Miz. Oh, was he um, was it when he was playing Stephen Hawking? Yes. Okay. Yes. Fair. Channing Tatum was in a movie about Stephen Hawking? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. We're going to do a movie about Stephen Hawking. I'm thinking about casting Channing Tatum. (laughs) Shane, I think you and I watched this uh, Oscars. I think we did. Um, And I think we were pretty spot on with our picks. Yeah, because you called Birdman, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. I... I still am happy with that pick. That was a good movie. It's a good yeah. movie. How did anyone like American Sniper? Hey. Whoa. Whoa. Whoa, that's American hero you're talking about. That's Bradley Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember all the drama around American Sniper, which is for another time. I'm sure the film will show up somewhere. It it did win best sound editing. <laughs> it did win best sound editing. Oh, fair. All right. Well, we're uh, we're getting on. Um, let's see. But yeah, critically acclaimed. I think we kind of got to that point. Yeah. So now now comes the the part where the rubber meets the road, and we rank this movie among all the movies we have seen. 
So it's got 50, 50 contenders now, including this one. Where does it fall? Oh, boy. This is a tough one. Mike? <laughs> June, your name's first on the list. <laughs> I know, but Mike, Mike sounds like he really wants to go. Yeah, my, so I know exactly where this one goes. This okay, is going to land at number 35 for me, right underneath the Bourne Ultimatum, because the Bourne Ultimatum was a better spy movie. <laughs> wow okay i didn't i didn't picture it going that low but yeah yeah fuck this movie <laughs> so should i i mean the reason for me is that it's kind of boring like i really felt that i did stop paying attention in a couple of spots i like the acting i didn't like the way they set up the story structure um and i didn't know any of the historical stuff you guys said so that kind of even bumped it down a little bit lower for me <laughs> once you learned the true story yeah Right. I'm looking at JFK real suspiciously on my list. I don't remember putting it that high. <laughs> <laughs> I need to see some documents. <laughs> Too bad the JFK papers. Because uh, I'm looking classified. at like five movies under JFK, and I go, "Oh, I like those better than this movie." But I like this movie better than JFK. Mm. You love what? JFK. Why is Blood Diamond so low on my list? <laughs> right. Um, I'll go next. I think I'm going to put it at number 15 behind Fiddler on the Roof and ahead of The Sound of Music for me. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I feel like it's it's either the in the best of the rest category or the worst of the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's a fair spot. I feel like that also the real pivot for this one is The King's Speech because that's maybe the closest competitor they're like similarly Very similar movies the same time period sort of same feel i do like world war ii dramas dramedies but <laughs> dramedies <laughs> uh whose turn is it all right i'll go um i will also put it at number 15 between kill bill and rio bravo huh uh there yeah i mean good acting even uh, like I'm still kind of on the fence of whether I would have liked it more as a more historically accurate film or not. I think what they changed was good enough to make it the story interesting. You guys uh, are, I think you guys are confused. So. You guys are putting it at number fifteen, which is high up on a fifty on a, out of fifty list, and you're making We're it sound like it was a bad Mike. film. Like it should shake out. <laughs> 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 like this movie's number one well it's all right okay let's look at maltese falcon up there mike <laughs> yeah uh, yeah you a movie you, you said you hated i feel like you <laughs> there can are look... obligations in place that are keeping it where it's at okay <laughs> social constructs that i cannot break i think if you look at our top five it's pretty cons- i don't know i'm not upset with our list my my pivot was like, or not so much the pivot, but I looked at the best years of our lives, and I was like, yeah, this is a better movie than the best years of our lives. Yeah, I, I did, mis- I did something similar. You misunderstand what I was saying. I was saying that like you guys are saying it's number fifteen, which is high up on the list, but then you're saying like negative things about it. I well, yeah, we say negative things about everything. Just yeah, yeah. I mean, I've. It's just the amount of negative things I've said. Like if you look at our <laughs> after thirty five. Those movies were eviscerated, and then... <laughs> I'm not trying to say anybody's wrong. I'm just saying it's funny that, like, I like this movie, and then you just talk that... Anyways, just do I, Shane. This, this movie is shit the entire time. Number five. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I am going to be close to you guys, 
but I think it's because I'm starting to doubt my list, but I'm, mine's going to be at 13 above JFK under the Iron Giant. The sad wow. thing is I think if you said like, hey, do you want to watch the Imitation Game or Rio Bravo? I'm going to choose Rio Bravo every time, but I I like this film. Unfortunately, I feel like I could kind of see through it because I'm viewing it from a meta like Oscar lens. So it makes me view the movie differently. But just watching the movie with my wife, we both were like, that was awesome. That was fun. I really liked it. Looking back on it and talking about it kind of brings it down. But it's it's not a <laughs> bad movie. <laughs> Number 13. I, this 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 could, had everything to be a top five movie, I'll be honest. Yeah. But and but what? the comments really? brought it down to that 15-ish uh Kira Knightley was way too hot. Way too hot. Yeah. <laughs> Joanne was not that hot. <laughs> um, the uh, what was I gonna say? Oh, this was also my second time watching it, and it definitely hit better the first time, which is unfortunate. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. It's not a good rewatch. So that, that, but that's a huge factor in my list building process, right? Oh, for if it doesn't sure. hold up twice, then it's not good. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, uh, it's still good, but not as good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, I think it would have ranked higher if we if you asked me after the first time I had seen it. Like I can go back and watch Blade Runner twenty forty nine the same day. Oh yeah, yeah, I can I watch. Agree. I'm gonna have to see that one a lot I can of times. Start that one before. over again before I even finish it. Her still <laughs> blows my mind. I still get to the end and think it's gonna end dark, and then it doesn't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, no, imitation game. It's it's not bad. Um. It's a good movie. It's just not as legendary as I think it's uh, being portrayed. But all right, cool. Well, final verdict. Do you recommend watching it, June? Yes. Chain. Yeah. Yeah. Mike. Uh, watch the Netflix documentary about the Turing machine. I think it's a little bit better. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you can watch it. That was an option. The Turing machine is a lot, <laughs> a lot drier than the Enigma. But anyway, I I recommend watching it as well. So Mike that's... just wants to watch eight hours of the Turing machine going. I just I just want something with that Burroughs talking over it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, everyone. What are we watching next? What are we watching next? Is it SLC Punk? Are... <laughs> no, it's Donnie Donnie Darko, dude. Ooh, Ooh. that one's gonna Very either be. Different. I feel like that one's going to be pretty divisive or we're going to just shit on it and throw it at the bottom. <laughs> we're so close to uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Number one, baby. Cure Nightly, coming <laughs> strong. She's allowed to be hot yeah, in that she, one. That character was known to be hot. <laughs> allowed to be hot? <laughs> Uh, excuse me, Elizabeth Swan's great, 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 great <laughs> granddaughter said she was ugly as a mug. <laughs> the Swans believed that the portrayal was accurate, but uh, the Sparrows have some discrepancies. <laughs> they want the record to show he did not drink that much. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Cool. Thanks, everyone. That's all, folks. 